Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. My name is Dan Hughes. With me today is Senior Portfolio Manager Scott Weber. Welcome, good, Scott. Good morning, Dan. So, Scott, we're, we're heading in here in the, in, in the back half of 2018, and you know, we've seen a really nice pickup by the market, you know, namely uh, if you look at the S&P as, as a proxy, you know, we're up over double digits at this point. Um, but one of the biggest headlines that have come out in the last quarter has been the changing media landscape. Uh, the Department of Justice recently ruled uh, allowing AT&T and Time Warner to merge. You know, we'd love to you know, hear your thoughts. I know you had you know, both of those positions inside the select strategy. You know, what, what do you think this means going forward, um, specifically inside of media and then expanding outside into other industries that are potentially affected? Absolutely. Well, first off, as active managers, we're attracted to the space because there's transition there. And where there's transition, there's opportunity to create alpha. And not to parse your words, but to give you a little background on the, the status of this merger. In 2014, AT&T bought DirecTV. DirecTV, uh, you know, the satellite provider as you and I know it, is what's known as an MVPD in the industry. An MVPD is a multi-channel video programming distributor. To old guys like you and me, that means a cable company. To the marketplace today, that doesn't necessarily mean a cable company. There are still satellite providers, but the growing portion here is the over-the-top component, things like DirecTV now. In that, AT&T essentially became the largest MVPD in the nation, which surprises a lot of folks that they're bigger than Comcast, Charter, etc. In 2016, AT&T agreed to buy Time Warner. Uh, in October of 2016, a man named Macon Delrahim, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, told, Can told Canada's Business News Network, I don't see this as a major antitrust problem. Mr. Delrahim was active in uh, Trump's uh, transition, his uh, inauguration. He was the deputy White House counsel and helped... Uh, helped United States Supreme Court Neil Gorsuch get uh, through confirmation. Uh, and as it happens, we are here August 30th. He's on a short list of folks that apparently the whisper is uh, he's being considered for attorney general, except that uh, Trump's probably not keen to replace Sessions until after the midterm. All that said, we can identify him as a Trump guy, so to speak. So in March 2017, uh, Delrahim was... Uh, uh, appointed to the Assistant Attorney General for the United States uh, Department of Justice Antitrust Division. Uh, after approval, uh, when he was given a hat that says, Macon Antitrust Great Again. Macon, of course, being a pun on his first name. Uh, Witty. He, yeah. he, so suffice it to say, let, let's identify him with the uh, executive branch strongly. On November 27th, sorry, on November 20th of 2017, Delrahim and the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit under Section 7 of the Clayton Antitrust Act to block AT&T's purchase of Time Warner. Uh, at that time, AT&T CEO inferred that uh, Trump's uh, lack of uh, favor, you might say, at CNN was a factor. Now, let me stress here at the outset, at Vaughn Nelson, we don't seek to create alpha through unique M&A situations. We'd like, in fact, we rather prefer to accrete alpha over time through good businesses that can compound. Uh, we were expecting this merger to close uh, in 2017, and obviously it got delayed. To shorten this timeline a bit, on June 12th of 2018, uh, District Judge Richard Leon rejected the government's uh, arguments and basically, in a sternly worded opinion, said that, uh, that there, there is no reason to block this merger and I don't think that you should uh, appeal. And of course, one month later, Delrahim and the DOJ filed an appeal. 
Meanwhile, as a sidebar, you know that we own uh, a position in Fox. The Disney acquisition of the Fox assets has sailed through DOJ without a problem. So let's just, hold on, let's just, before you start jumping over there to Fox, so can we just, just tighten up what's going to end up happening here? So AT&T and Time Warner, just to fast forward a little bit, have ultimately been given the go-ahead. They've been cleared by the Department of Justice. These are now one company. Correct. They closed the merger 40, essentially 48 hours after Leon's uh, opinion was released. So that happens. Next thing we look at, how, this, this is changing the media landscape across the board here, right? So this is this is you know pretty substantial ruling. Um, we own Fox, Fox and and Disney and Comcast have been dancing with each other. What does this look like? Okay, so Comcast essentially is out of the running for the Fox assets. Fox owns roughly forty percent of Sky assets in the UK. That separately traded asset may end up in Comcast hands, but essentially. Fox, Disney is a fait accompli. The very attractive asset there, by the way, is Star, an Indian platform. Uh, so, but, but focusing all of this back on the more 30,000-foot uh, uh, view, it's emblematic of all of the shift in the media landscape where uh, you have growth on an over-the-top channel, you have a, a shrinking MVPD direct relationship, the traditional cable relationship that you and I are more familiar with, and at the same time, a massively shifting media landscape. Now we've talked in the past about how Facebook and Google as digital advertising platforms have taken share from radio, from print, etc. And our thesis really centers on the fact that AT&T by way of DirecTV now has assembled uh, a very comprehensive media platform and, and, and can avail themselves of the growth in online consumption of media, and they are bringing forth a very granular view uh, of the customer, which should inure to their benefit of CPM growth, the, the cost per impression. When, when you are served an ad, the advertiser should be willing to pay the AT&T platform more than a traditional video platform because the level of data that they've got you, the consumer, is much higher. Now, this circumnavigates some legacy uh, regulation that AT&T was subject to in the form of the common carrier restrictions where they're not supposed to listen to your phone calls, et cetera. That's old school, long distance regulation. But the gist of this is if you take the level of granularity that Facebook and Google have on you as a customer through your search history, your emails, your friends, and everything that when you click OK as a, as a when, when you sign up to those platforms, you're essentially granting them a window into your activity. DirecTV now in particular is essentially the same thing. And, and this is the appeal from Star, this is the appeal for Sky, this is the appeal for Hulu, right? I mean, it's the same story. I, I, in, in the context of a short podcast, it's hard to go through each of these, right? I mean, <laughs> from, a mar- if, if from, want, from a marketing advertisement want, perspective. If you want a high-level view, Star is sort of the Netflix of India, if you will, and, it, and it's growing. Um, Sky is a little bit of a combination of content and distribution. The key point here is that AT&T, yes, they levered up, uh, and yes, they're essentially flirting with the loss of investment grade rating. But at the same time, by, wh- by virtue of acquiring Time Warner, have very enviable, very attractive content assets, which upgrades their margin profile. It upgrades their ability to generate cash. It upgrades their profile as an advertising platform. And at the same time, we believe they'll delever. Meanwhile, the market is, I think, myopically focused on the sub-loss at the traditional DirecTV customer, which we expect to continue to, to go down, and also the shifting uh, 
let's not forget they're in the cell phone business, the shifting consumption patterns for mobile handset use. There again, you find uh, an interesting DOJ situation with the competitors Sprint and um, T-Mobile in merger discussions on and again and off again, et cetera. Put it all into one machine and, and, and refine it, and what you have with AT&T is a lead position across the profile with attractive and improving margins and cash flow generation capacity. So, and then on this Fox Disney merge, a lot of news is coming out talking about the um, movies and the studio production, and you know this could potentially be uh, one company that's out there now that has the assets to compete with Netflix, right? Uh, so, you know, if, if I'm you know, sifting through all this, you there will be some competition uh, that exists now because you don't have these um, monolithic monsters that sit here and can completely control pricing and distribution in the industry, um, both by being a, a first mover, but also being the, the, the biggest player in the space. No, that, that's absolutely right. And I wouldn't posit Fox, Disney as a strictly Netflix competitor. The beauty of Netflix in, is, is their ability, A, to obviously continue to get new subscribers, but to generate their own content now, which in the old days when red boxes arrived in the mail with DVDs in them, no one ever contemplated this. But their beauty is they can create content that's relevant for their viewers. And why is that? Because they know what their viewers are watching. And so that, I guess, epiphany is permeating the industry from a content generation standpoint at a time when we as consumers are no longer beholden to the 30-minute interrupted at 10-minute breaks, you know, sitcom format or the two-hour movie format. It's all shifting. The way we're able to consume this, whether you're going to watch a five-minute video on the train on the way to work, or if you want to binge watch a full season, you have the capacity to watch when, how, and where you choose to. And soon, the advertising-funded component of that will be when, how, and where you choose to consume that as well. So, so... You know, this this is good in the sense that you know there will be some competition that that is you know arises from this, um, but it's going to be with a very few players, right? Your competition has increased, but the barrier to entry probably has also increased meaningfully. So you know, there's there's got to be some current concerns around that. Would you would you do agree? Yeah, no, I, I I agree. And in as much as barriers to entry are rising, I mean, this is still shifting sands. That's not to say there's not opportunities, but there are a myriad of content providers out there who've now been forgotten, so to speak, by the by the markets because they feel like they've been left at the curb. There's no doubt that Fox Disney is a juggernaut. And as they transition into their own direct verticals with respect to sports programming, children-related programming, their Star Wars franchise, you know, adding on the, the, the Fox assets to that, they will have their own multivariate channels, and you'll be able to hear again, consume as, where, and how you see fit. Okay. All right, I think we've beaten this one up a bit. Um, all right, let's move on here, looking at the market as a whole. Uh, Russell 2000, Russell 1000, we're both up, uh, you know, 10 plus percent here to date. How surprising is this to you, given we've seen liquidity tighten here with, within the, the Fed, tighten up the balance sheet? Um, rates have been moving up on a pretty consistent basis. I think the, uh, you know, most folks at this point would um, be hard-pressed to say that anything other than a couple more raises in, in 18 and a few in, in 19 are coming. Uh, are you shocked that, that the market continues to persevere and, and, and click forward as it has? You know, shocked is a stronger word than I'd use. I'm, I'm reasonably surprised. Um, I will say that many of the you know, the factors that you illuminate there specifically, uh, you know, Fed policy are, are really kind of just beginning. At this point in the cycle, here we are, you know, not even September yet. First of all, 
we, we all know that everyone's at the beach, uh, and in September they'll arrive back from the beach and say, oh my gosh, what happened? Um, yes, the Fed, through quantitative tightening, has reduced the liquidity environment in, uh, in the United States. At the same time, the U.S. economy, uh, on, a, on a, not a public market standpoint, but just an economic statistics standpoint, is growing very nicely, and it's outgrowing the rest of the world, and dollar strength has also attracted assets to the U.S. On top of that, the fiscal effects of the Tax Cut and Job Act, specifically the repatriation of, I've seen estimates, well north of a trillion dollars of, of capital that's coming home from, from um, you know, U.S. assets that are held overseas, in addition to foreign assets or foreign investors seeking a greater U.S. position, has resulted in inflows. Those inflows have grown multiples. I mean, it's interesting to me that smalls trade at a premium to larges, although larges are generally higher return, higher margin. Uh, there may be embedded growth expectations there. There may be more U.S.-focused expectations there. It, it can be a number of factors. But everything that you just described, I believe, is just beginning. And so as we look forward, uh, the tax incentive to top up the pensions basically ends in September. Uh, the quantitative tightening really is, is just getting traction here in the United States. Uh, the, the Fed, it's in, it'll be interesting to see whether or not uh, you know, Powell adheres to the sort of the dot path that the market seems to expect him to do. And you, know, you have not yet seen tightening in Europe. So when each of those really fundamental factors begin to get traction, uh, we continue to expect volatility to return, which is why we seek to avoid heavy index ownership stocks. We seek to avoid uh, the overinflated names uh, and the liquidity that has, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. L liquidity begets credit, and credit growth over the last few years has essentially been double nominal GDP. Right. So that, that is, is asset buying power. Right. I, I think that that begins to shift. Um, I think that, you know, we, we've been saying this, and we're probably still early, but volatility as a function of reduced liquidity should, you know, begin to rear its head. And in any case, we are being much more selective with our purchasing than, than for the last eight years. You, know, you, you bring up one you know, topic that we've talked about in here, um, we've alluded to, we've discussed around the office, we've read a bunch about, but it's, it's the ECB, right? And, and the likelihood of them um, going through the, you know, the quantitative tightening process at, at the same time here as the U.S. So, you know, what would you give, you know, I don't know if you want to do odds or percentage or what we want to do here, but you know, what, what are your thoughts? Do you, do you think that is going to happen? I mean, it, it seems like, uh, you know, if, a year ago that was the expectation, um, but, you know, here we are uh, in, well into the second half of, of 18 and it hasn't happened yet. Well, and I, I think they were very direct in saying that they're not on the same path that we are. They're, they're still reducing accommodation as opposed to, um, you know, i.e. I they're buying fewer uh, they're, they're reducing their quantitative easing. They're not, strictly speaking, quantitative tightening yet. And then the other, you know, sort of sideshow factors to consider with respect to handicapping ECB moves are, one, uh, the the lead role. Uh, the, you know, there, there's, right now we're in the midst of politicking for who'll assume the role from Draghi. And two, we, we've got some interesting activity going on in Italy, mm -hmm. which may sort of force their hand as well. Um, let's also not overlook the fact that uh, their credit concerns, partly surrounding uh, EMs, but also rolling all the way up to the, you know, the, to, to for example Deutsche Bank. And you know, 
if there has been a southern Europe, northern Europe uh, tension with respect to uh, easing and policy response, if Deutsche Bank ends up needing help, it'll be interesting to see what the northern Europe response to that is. So uh, there's no way you can handicap that at the moment, but in any case, none of it uh, is, is uh, a path uh, strewn with cupcakes and rainbows. Yeah, exactly. Um, so just pulling back to the U.S. So, you know, with, within our portfolios, there is such a focus on fundamentals. There's such a focus on a quality bias. And you look out again at the returns of the FANG stocks, right? Facebook and Amazon, uh, Netflix, Google this year. Uh, and they're fantastic. They're phenomenal. How much of a, of a, a temptation is there to chase uh, particularly as you run a portfolio with you know 25 to 30 stocks, um, owning one of those would have been really meaningful in the returns to, uh, in the overall returns of the, of, of the strategy. Sure, and you know strictly speaking, if we're going to adhere to this nomenclature of uh, acronyms, I'd throw Apple in there, and Apple's not going to be the you know the lightning rod of the Fang stocks. We we do have a, a position in Apple, but but to address your your greater point, um, I I think that a lot of what we spoke with or a lot of what we spoke about with respect to AT&T is a competitive dynamic for the unbelievable growth that you've seen specifically in the advertising models of Facebook and Google, which is to say, if the market continues to believe that these are 30 to 40% growers, the market may not be fully contemplating two things. One, the competitive dynamic of uh, an ad served to a DirecTV Now customer where you've got an IP address level specificity as opposed to some ad exchange in you know, Amsterdam or Singapore. Said differently, the advertising behavior will shift there. I think that dents the growth potential in each of those names. And that's before you start worrying about whether or not the costs associated with having to become, uh, or having to assume a greater role of curation in the, in the feed overall, erodes those margins. That's not to say they're not great businesses. They're fantastic businesses. I just think that the market has, after, you know, several years been lulled to rest with respect to the omnipresent risk, particularly the competitive threat in those business models. You know, it, it is interesting that you know, th there have been phenomenal performance from, from the FANG stocks, and, and I'll hasten to add, with the contrarian bias that we tend to have, by the time some theme has generated its own acronym, by definition, it's less attractive to us. Um, and, and while I fully and freely to say these are fantastic businesses. The growth has been very attractive. Um, I, I do believe that uh, from a valuation standpoint and a rising competitive threat standpoint, there are risks that are not fully appreciated by the incremental buyer of those stocks today. But interesting enough, you, you do own a large gold platform, um, both in, in Alibaba and Altaba. Uh, you know, do you, are you viewing these as alternative to FANG um, within the Von Nelson investing framework? You know, here again, we're not we're not in per se viewing it as an alternative to FANG because we're not going to worry about what the acronym is. We just bottoms up want to preserve and, and generate return, preserve capital and generate returns for the clients. Um, taking them separately, let's simplify Altaba by saying that you know this is the former Yahoo that had an early position in Alibaba. It's a large asset at that company. They also own a, a portion of Yahoo Japan and a, and a very enviable patent portfolio, which we hope. And, and the company has uh, said that they intend to monetize. Uh, as a sidebar, after selling the U.S. business, the U.S. Yahoo business, that corporation uh, shifted its form to a closed-end fund, which makes it a little quirky, and we can't own too much of it in the mutual fund because of that. 
Now the core asset here and the reason to be attracted to Altaba is of course Alibaba. Alibaba uh, is often simplified, uh, you know, is described in a simplified method by saying it's a little bit of Microsoft, a little bit of Google, a little bit of Amazon, and, and all that's true and there's nuances to it. I think, uh, I think that brands tend to prefer to sell on Alibaba because they have more control of product. They probably have better information from that. There's no doubt that the consumer uh, market, particularly the uh, Chinese-focused consumer market, is an amazing, large, and growing uh, market space. Uh, they are global, but predominantly Asian, to be sure. And what's really interesting, if you dig through the numbers in Alibaba, is not just the aggregate growth, but the growth at user intensity. Said differently, you know, if, if you stopped having new users on Alibaba tomorrow, you still have rapid growth as user intensity continues to, to, to grow there. So they're in a multiple of various interesting business like cloud services, payments, uh, it, to say just a couple of them. So it's an attractive uh, asset. It is a wonderful company. Um, the fact that it's not US uh, specific today is, is not helping it. But over the long arc and certainly through our investment horizon, it's going to be an asset that we're going to be very happy to have owned. Great. All right, so let's transition to, to our last topic here, uh, growth and value, right? Um, growth has just walled value over the last few years. And, you know, as just roughly as we're looking, as we're sitting here today, uh, growth is outpaced the value um, by about 1,000 basis points, virtually across any, any market cap. Um, you know, I, I just took a peek at, at the uh, Russell 1 uh, value versus growth right before we hopped in here. We're looking at like 1,100 basis points. I mean, come on, how, how much further can this stretch? Uh, and then what are we looking for for signs of reversal? When do you think value becomes favorable again? Yeah, and you know, I wish we had that crystal ball. The, the important thing to, I think, lead off with here is in, we're not an investor style that's, meaning the Von Nelson method is, is not going to lend itself very well to a very bipolar growth versus value world. I mean, yes, we employ a value investing technique, but we've been able to provide alpha throughout that time because growth is absolutely a portion of, of our return driver. Uh, uh, the trick is we don't want to pay forward for it. Um, and so as you think about what has fueled growth uh, and, and you look, at, you know, since the credit crisis, we've in the United States grown the central bank balance sheet by, what is it, four trillion or something uh, about that. And over that same time period, things like buybacks have, you know, in company buybacks have generated 3.8 trillion ish and these are rough numbers but uh, you see them from several sources that that highlight that these are functions of liquidity the price paid for assets has gone up now we've had growth to be sure the economy is growing to be sure but the amount that you pay for a financial asset has grown more if you see an environment where liquidity is no longer growing say, for example, quantitative tightening, or if you see um, um, less foreign purchasers of U.S. securities, those are the signs that ultimately lead to at least volatility, certainly a transition, um, that, that are the shifts. Those are the, the seeds that, that sprout into value, uh, value's opportunity there. And, and if, if you think over time, you know, over a long arc, values outperform growth. Certainly the last almost decade is, is a bit of an anomaly. Does that mean you absolutely have to have mean reversion? Absolutely not, you know. Does it mean directionally it's a place to look? Probably so. And so 
I, I can't stamp a calendar at, at, until you when that happens, but the seeds for that transition are there. And I think the time to take particularly uh, index-centric beta off the table is probably getting closer rather than farther away. And, and, and you might read through that, but that's the mindset that we're approaching investing with today. All right, last one, I'll let you hop. Uh, you've alluded to this a few times throughout the conversation this afternoon, but uh, still, U.S. over everywhere else? Uh, meaning our uh, investment focus or meaning uh, market performance? Uh, market performance. And then I guess that, uh, that of course, trickles down into to the portfolio. Sure. I mean, the, the, the easy answer to that question is, is when, when does the, the dollar strength begin to abate? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the central key there. Certainly, EMs are suffering it by virtue of their offshore, you know, their dollar-denominated debt. Right. Uh, to the extent that you know, non-EMs have credit exposure to that, you know, if, if the credit engine is growing in the United States, and, and you still continue to have dollar strength, you'll continue to attract dollars inward. Uh, a couple of the sort of fundamental things, like uh, the tax cut and job act repatriation of foreign-held uh, dollars, will at the margin reduce that offsetting. That a little bit is, you know, a, a change in appetite for U.S. Treasuries. Let's not overlook that the current account deficit has to be funded some way. Uh, we, we have not really seen growth in, in the, in the uh, Treasury interchange data for, for foreign purchases of Treasuries. If that continues, you know, who knows? Maybe that means the dollar ends up becoming weaker. Again, it's not a mean reverting environment. We're just looking for the fundamental clues that tell us when the shifts begin. Perfect. Good. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Scott. Very much appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to having you again uh, shortly. Thanks again, Dan. Yep. For investment professional use only, important information. The analysis and opinions referenced herein represent the subjective views of Daniel Hughes and Scott Weber on August 30th, 2018. They are subject to change at any time based on market and other conditions. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Top 10 holdings for Vaughn Nelson Select Strategy as of 8-31-2018. Number 1, Microsoft Corp., 5.89%. Number 2, 21st Century Fox, 5.48%. Number 3, Sherman Williams, 5.46%. Number 4, Berkshire Hathaway, 5.15%. Number 5, United Health Group, 5.08%. Number six, Roper Technologies, 5.02%. Number seven, Cosmo Energy Limited, 4.99%. Number eight, Home Depot Inc., 4.86%. Number nine, AT&T, 4.78%. Number 10, Snap-on Inc., 4.69%. As of August 31st, 2018, The Vaughn Nelson Select Strategy has 1.93 exposure to Alibaba Group. As of August 31, 2018, the strategy did not have exposure to Time Warner, Comcast, Charter, Disney, Star, Sky, Netflix, Sprint, T-Mobile, Redbox, Deutsche Bank, Facebook, Google, Hulu, DirecTV, Amazon, or Eltaba. Any reference to specific security sectors or markets within this material does not constitute investment advice or recommendation or an offer to buy or to sell any security or any offer of services. Equity securities are volatile and can can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions.
Non-diversified funds invest in a greater portion of assets and fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Investments in small and mid-sized companies can be more volatile than those of larger companies. Options may be used for hedging purposes but also entail risk related to liquidity, market conditions, and credit that may increase volatility. The value of the fund's position in options may fluctuate in response to changes in the value of the underlying asset. Selling call options may limit returns in a rising market. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Natixis Distribution LP is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and is the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Pod 103-0818, expiration 131-2019.